so are distressing. Honestly, they're really, really challenging to process through. I'm sure you feel that as well. As people, we, um, we condemn the atrocious acts committed by the terrorists of Hamas. Decades of loss of human life of Palestinians and Israelis are awful, all of them being image bearers of God. And our response is to lament before our God. And so I want to take a moment and pray now if you would join me. Father, our hearts break as we see the devastation and loss of life that's taking place. We know from your word that you take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And that your desire is that the wicked would repent and turn and live. Father, we pray for those in Israel and Gaza that have lost loved ones and are waiting to hear news of missing loved ones. We pray for the revelation of Jesus, the Christ, who is our Messiah. You are our only hope. And the only hope for Muslims and for Jews who have rejected you. We pray that they would turn, repent, and believe that you alone are the way, the truth, and the life. And we pray for Christians in those areas that have endured so much persecution for their faith and face unfathomable situations ahead. We pray that you would comfort them with your surpassing peace. We pray that the Prince of Peace and of life would reign in the hearts of Palestinians and in the hearts of Israelis. We pray in your precious and holy name. Amen. This morning we are continuing our study through the book of Acts. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. So go ahead and turn there. Today's passage is the fulfillment of what the risen Lord had promised to the disciples before he ascended into heaven. Acts 1 verse 4 says that while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Then in verse 8 of chapter 1, Jesus says to them, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And now we come to the time when that takes place. So let's look at the text together. If you're able to stand, please do so and follow along as I read verses 1 through 13 of chapter 2 of Acts. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. 
And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we praise you for your word. What a gift. We ask that you'd help us today, Lord. Help us to be hearers and doers and believers by your grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Verse 1 begins, when the day of Pentecost arrived. This is an incredible moment in church history. And remember from, from week 1 of our study, we talked about how this is our history. This is our story. The story of the church. And so the hope that this text, this moment in church history brings is our hope. It's hope for us. It's hope for you and for me. In the beginning of the text, it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived. Now, just so that we're all on the same page here, the day of Pentecost is not a day that was identified because of what happened here in this text. And we tend to only think of Pentecost in light of Acts chapter 2, but this was an established Jewish festival. For a first century Jew, Pentecost was the 50th day after Passover. So consider that. Here in Acts chapter 2, we're 50 days out from the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Pentecost was an agricultural festival known as the Feast of Weeks. And there were three festivals that brought Jewish people to pilgrimage to Jerusalem, three great festivals of Israel, and this is the second of those three festivals. It's the day when farmers brought the first sheaf of wheat from the crop and offered it to God, and that was partly an offering of thankfulness. It was an offering of thanksgiving for what the Lord had provided, and then partly a petition or a prayer that all of the rest of the crop would also be safely brought in. But that isn't all that would be happening in the minds and hearts of faithful Jews. Because these festivals would awaken in the hearts and minds of Jews echoes of the great story which dominated the memories of Jewish people. And that's the story of the Exodus. The exodus from Egypt when God fulfilled his promises to Abraham by rescuing his people. And Passover 
was the time when the lambs were sacrificed and the Israelites were saved from the angel who killed the firstborn of the Egyptians. And that night they fled Egypt and then passed through the Red Sea and into the Sinai Desert. That's obviously just a quick overview of a lot that takes place there. But, but that's, that's what they're remembering in these festivals. And also 50 days after Passover, they came in, in Exodus, they come to Mount Sinai. And it was there that Moses received the law. So Pentecost isn't just about first fruits, the sheaves that, that were brought in or offered. It's about God giving to his redeemed people the way of life by which they must now carry on his purposes. And that's incredibly significant. Both, both of the things, the Feast of Weeks and the giving of the law on the 50th day after Passover, which is Pentecost. Both of those things are significant as we consider what and when God does what He does in this passage. It continues in verse 1. It says, they were all together in one place. Now, we already knew that this was a focus for them after the ascension of Jesus, that they were committed, worshiping, devoting themselves to prayer together. Look how Luke stresses it here. It would have worked for, for him to just write, they were together. Or they were all in one place. But he triples this for emphasis. All and together and in one place. The Spirit comes as they're together, not to divide, but to unite. And that is always, always the case. And most likely, this is referring to the approximately 120 believers that are mentioned in chapter 1, verse 15. It continues, verses 2 through 4. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So now the Spirit comes just as God had promised, as the Lord Jesus had promised, and the description is incredible. Suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. A couple things here. First and foremost, what happens, what's being described, it says, comes from heaven. This is a holy thing. It is a work of God. It is the Spirit coming in power. And secondly, whatever's happening here, it sounds like a mighty rushing wind. So although we don't know for sure, it's, it's not that the room filled with a mighty wind where they're all being blown around, but with the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And it says that that sound filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. Again, were these actual flames that came and rested on each of them? 
I don't know. Divided tongues as of fire, it says, appeared to them and rested on them. Now, all of that had to have been terrifying and exhilarating at the same time. But again, we want to be wise here. This is a description of what happened when the Spirit came at Pentecost. It is not prescriptive of what we should expect when the Spirit comes today. There are many times later in Acts and following in the life of the church up through today when the Spirit works softly and secretly, quietly transforming people's lives and situations without any big noise or fanfare. And that's important because we should come to this text, this particular circumstance in church history, and we should be amazed and rejoice at the work of the Spirit there. And at the same time, we should be amazed and rejoice at the work of the Spirit in our own lives when that work is quiet and not at all resembling what we read in these verses. You may be tempted, and this is why this is important, you may be tempted to read texts like these and question whether you truly have the Holy Spirit. Whether you've truly received the Spirit. And although we, we want and we need to know that we have the Spirit of God in us, we don't base His presence on a comparison with what took place on the day of Pentecost. With these early Christ followers. It goes on, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is incredible. They are filled with the Spirit of God. And just the thought that that happens is incredible. And just as Jesus said, they receive power. Power to do what is impossible apart from the Lord. They begin to speak in languages that they had never previously been trained in. Now, this is important for today and for texts that are coming later in Acts, but it's clear in this text that the gift of tongues here was the ability to speak in known languages. We're told that very specifically. They began to speak in other tongues, and that word translated tongues there is languages. Not only that, but Luke is specific in telling us all of the different peoples who are gathered in the languages that would have been represented, and these disciples are able to, to speak. And we see that more in these next verses. Follow along 5 through 11. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one of each one was hearing them speak in his own language. 
And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. There are many, many people in Jerusalem. Luke identifies them as devout men, men who were observing the law and observing Jewish traditions, faithful men to the law. And that's why many of them are dwelling or in Jerusalem because they're there for the feast, for Pentecost. Now, we don't know the breakdown for sure, whether there is um, diaspora Jews who have returned and are now living in Jerusalem, or if it's primarily Jewish pilgrims who had come to stay in Jerusalem during the Feast of Pentecost, but, but it says there are many, there's a multitude there. People outside the house are hearing the sounds that are welling up from inside the house, and it causes them to come together toward this house. It says the multitude came together, and as they approached the house, because they heard this sound coming from within, it says they are bewildered. Why? Because each individual is hearing them speak in his own language. That's clear from the remainder of the text. That should not be possible. The hearers are people from all over who each spoke different languages. Now, it has been asked whether maybe this miracle is one where the disciples of Jesus gathered together are are declaring, they received the Spirit, and they're declaring the works of God in their own language And the miracle is that the people are hearing it in their own language. So the miracle is one that the Spirit does in the translation of it to the hearers. And I think we can confidently say that's not what's happening here. That's not what Luke describes anyway. It says, or Luke writes, that the disciples spoke in tongues. They they spoke in tongues. They spoke in languages. And then later he says, we, the people said that we hear them telling in our tongues the mighty works of God. But, but what's taking place is this miracle within those who received the Spirit, giving them the ability to speak these many languages. And it says that the people hearing were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans. In other words, these people who were not trained in, did not speak or understand the native languages of these people gathered. Now, would everyone represented inside the home and outside of the home been able to communicate together in Greek, which was the common language of the people by this point because of Roman Empire taking over. 
They could have gotten along, yes. They could have communicated in some way most likely. But the Lord speaks to the hearts of each of these gathered by empowering the disciples of Jesus to speak their native language, their heart language, the one that, was, that they were most fluent in and most clearly articulated the, the longings and desires and secrets of their own hearts. And who are those gathered and where are they from? N.T. Wright paints a helpful picture here. It says, or he says, Luke gives the list of where they came from in a great sprawling sweep covering tens of thousands of square miles from Parthia and Mesopotamia in the north and east to Rome in the west and Egypt and Arabia in the south together with the island of Crete. This is a group of people, a multitude of people, it says, gathered from every nation under heaven. And Luke clarifies this is both Jews and proselytes. Proselytes are Gentiles who, who converted to Judaism. And King Jesus is speaking to them all through those to whom he has sent his Holy Spirit. Verse 11b, the very end there, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. What are these disciples declaring? They're proclaiming the gospel, the works of God, proclamation of the great things God has done. And you consider what's happening here. This one miracle embodies the desire of God to spread the gospel to all nations. In verses 12 and 13, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Multiple reactions, many as we're not just going to see here, but in coming verses are amazed and perplexed, and it seems like they're looking inward and looking to one another, asking the very important question, what does this mean? Don't overlook that. Don't overlook what it causes in these people. It's the question every single human being should ask about the resurrection of Jesus. If someone came to this earth and claimed to be God, and claim to be the one to save people from their sins. And if that same person said that they would be killed, but would come back to life, and then that person was killed in a horrible execution, but then his grave was empty on the third day, and hundreds of people have given testimony to seeing him alive again, then, then we must ask, 
what does that mean? What does that mean for the world we live in? What does that mean for how we interact, how I interact with the world? What does that mean with, for how we interact with our family that God has entrusted us with? What does that mean for how we interact with our friends and with our neighbors and with our enemies? What does that mean for how I live my life? What does that mean for what I value and how I interact with God, with this King Jesus who takes away the sin of the world? What does this mean? But not everyone was asking that. Some mocked. What a terrifying response to such a clear display of God's power. Just responding, they're just drunk. I hope that none of us respond that way, just saying things to blow off the evidence of the resurrected Savior. What an amazing thing that happened that day. And I want us to consider it. I want us to consider what happened on the day of Pentecost. To zoom out and consider something that is happening in this miraculous event. And to do that, let's go far back in time. We're going to go back to the book of Genesis. In the creation story, God gives a command to man. Adam and Eve. In Genesis 1.28, it says, And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God commanded humanity from the very beginning to fill the earth with communities and cultures. And it was to be wonderful. But what happens very, very early on, you don't get far. If you go to Genesis 11, you're welcome to just listen or follow along if you want. Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9, it says this. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is the, only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them 
from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, what is this? What is happening? What's going on here in Genesis 11, so early in the story of God? These people are rejecting God's command to fill the earth. They're supposed to spread out across the earth that God had created. Why? So that the whole earth would be filled with people who called on the name of the Lord. But Genesis 11.2 says that instead they found a plain and settled there. And then in verse 4, we learn that they wanted to build a great city lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Nancy Guthrie writes on this, why would they do that? Because they longed for the security that comes from being surrounded by other people who look like them and talk like them just like we do. They really had no concern about spreading the glory of God to every corner of this earth. They really just wanted a piece of glory for themselves. And if God wouldn't give it to them, they would just go up to heaven and get it from him. They intended to build a tower that would reach up to the heavens and in this way, quote, make a name for themselves, end quote. And so what does God do in response to this? It says he looks down and he goes down and he confuses their language. He confused the language of all the earth and then dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And now we come to Acts 2, Pentecost. And many, many years earlier on this day, Moses ascended Mount Sinai and received the law and brings it down to the people. Now Jesus has ascended into heaven and sends down the Holy Spirit, as, as N.T. Wright explains, not with a written law carved on tablets of stone, but with the dynamic energy of the law designed to be written on human hearts. But there's more. People from every nation under heaven have gathered in Jerusalem. People who represent everyone who was scattered, dispersed at Babel. And they're now gathered again for this feast. And here in Jerusalem, they're divided by only one thing, language. But suddenly God comes and the disciples begin to speak so that everyone heard the gospel in his own language. God came down in mercy to reverse the curse of Babel. Jarvis Williams writes concerning this, the curse of the linguistic division of the Tower of Babel is reversed, and God's supernatural Holy Spirit begins to unify the nations once separated. 
the beautiful diversity that God originally created for the people to live in harmony with one another and is now beginning the process of restoration and unification in Christ by the power of the Spirit because of His resurrection. As Luke demonstrates throughout the rest of Acts, the Holy Spirit comes to both Jews and Gentiles by faith in Christ, and He forms these diverse groups into one people of God. Beautiful. But as Scott McKnight wisely notes, it should be noticed that Acts 2 does not, like the pre-Babel days, return to one language. Rather, God blesses the multiplicity of languages. And to what end does he do that? Where is this Babel to Pentecost trajectory headed? Where in the beginning there's this story of this tower and these people and God curses and, and, and spreads them and gives them multiple languages. They don't understand each other any longer. And then here 2,000 or more years later in Acts chapter 2, God comes down and unifies their ability to hear the gospel. Where is that headed? And the answer to that is thousands of years ahead. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, where John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude, that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is what will be accomplished through Pentecost. Pentecost is a heavenly thing, a heavenly work. It is a sound from heaven, the Spirit from heaven to give a taste of heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Maybe you read Acts chapter 2 and in your heart you long for God to do a work like this. And I would say to you, if that is what you long for, then make this your aim. This is why one of our core values here at Cornerstone is gospel diversity. We believe this is exactly the aim of God in the church. Our value reads this way. Revelation 7, 9 that we just looked at tells us that God is saving people from every tribe, tongue, and people group. Therefore, the gospel of Jesus Christ is truly good news for every person on earth, knowing 
that God has sovereignly built Cornerstone in the community of Westerville, Ohio, our desire is that we would grow to reflect the racial, ethnic, socioeconomic, and generational diversity of our city. We therefore commit to actively pursuing, engaging, and welcoming all people with the hope that our church body would reflect the beauty of this diversity. We believe this is the aim of God in and through the church and that we are called to pray and seek to embody Jesus' call to us. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're going to move into a time where we take the Lord's Supper together. And in 1 John 2, 2, John writes these words. He, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, all peoples. Jesus died. His body was broken and his blood shed for this very purpose. He was the satisfaction and is the satisfaction of God's wrath. That's what, that's what propitiation means, the satisfaction of God's wrath. For our sins and the sins of the whole world, of every tribe and every tongue. And this Jesus is the one who comes to undo the curse of Babel and the curse of of sin. So whatever sin that might be for you, whatever guilt or confusion that has been attached to it, Christ can reverse the curse, the guilt, and the confusion. And we remember, we remember, and we rejoice in the power and truth of the gospel reflected in his body broken and his blood poured out for the forgiveness of all of our sins. He is the propitiation. He's the satisfaction of God's wrath for our sins. And not only us, but for the sins of the whole world. For any, any people who would call on the name of of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we praise you and we thank you and we need you. We need you. If there's one thing that's evidenced in this passage, even more than your power, it is your love. You display your love through Pentecost. Love for the people who don't know you. Love for the people who are not like us, who don't look like us, who don't dress like us, who don't speak like us. Lord, you, you, you make so clear your love for everyone. desire that all would come to repentance. 
So, Father, we pray that you would help us to be a people who love what you love, who love who you love, and who love how you love. Let us be a people who unashamedly confess and repent of our self-centeredness, of our tribalism. Of our lack of care for those who don't know you. Of our lack of intense love for those who are enemies. And help us. Help us to walk reflecting the very thing that we're going to proclaim in taking the bread and the cup right now. That we believe that your body was broken and your blood was shed. We proclaim the Lord's death until you come. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.